You're listening to SBS On The Money with Ricardo Gonsalves. It's your daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap for this Friday, the 8th of December, 2023. On Market Day, we'll speak with Kyle Rodder from Capital.com about the day on the markets, including that massive potential $80 billion merger between Santos and Woodside. But first, to the new agreement between the RBA and government, which sets out how the bank will operate, including its double mandate and independence. For that, I spoke with Paul Bloxham, Chief Economist at HSBC. So this statement, it operationalises how the RBA interprets what it's supposed to be doing. So the RBA has an inflation target, but it also has a mandate to try to keep as close to full employment as possible. And this is the agreement that the government and the RBA agree to as to exactly what that looks like. So the real specifics around around that. How often is it reviewed? Typically, in the past, it's often been reviewed around a change of government. But this time around, of course, we had a change of government. Then we had this big review of the RBA. So it's been a bit delayed. And that's why we haven't got it till now. Let's go into more detail about that mandate. A key component of this statement is the role of the RBA, which is basically to ensure economic prosperity by setting monetary policy, so basically interest rates, to contribute to both price stability and full employment. What exactly does that mean? Well, so the main thing is this this, this statement really tries to get down to exactly what they're trying to achieve. And what it hasn't changed is that they are seeking to get inflation to be at 2 to 3%. That's their main, main objective. And in addition to that, they're trying to maintain as close to full employment as possible. But what it does do is it slightly differently specifies how they're to balance those two objectives. So instead of stating that they need to get 2 to 3% inflation on average over time, this, this agreement says that actually they have to balance that with their employment objective as well. And it really is to the Reserve Bank to have the board. It's their discretion that they can use to determine how it is, what the time frame is and, ha- is and how they balance that inflation target and, and the, employment, the employment target. So this delivers maximum flexibility for the board to work out the best mix of how they should pe- set policy to deliver that. But it also specifies they have to be very clear about communicating to the public about what it is they're doing and the strategy they're taking. So given that maximum flexibility, what does it ultimately mean for um, where interest rates will be in the future? Does it change things at all? It doesn't change anything relative to to before it being announced, really, in in, in a broad sense. But it does remind us that the RBA is trying to get inflation back down to 2 to 3%. It's well above that right now. It also stated that they need to aim at the midpoint of that target. So they're aiming for two and a half. Now, that wasn't in the old agreement, but it is actually very, it's more specific in this agreement. I think the bottom line, the upshot is with inflation still still well above target at the moment, we should expect that interest rates are probably going to be on hold for a while. They're going to be at this level, this high level, holding down growth and slowing the economy for a while because inflation needs to come down and it's still quite high. When we talk about full employment, what is full employment? Well, this is it. The agreement that was signed, the the, the statement today, really says that there is no one definition of what we mean by full employment. Uh, You know, you you, you can't specify a particular level of the unemployment rate because then you could look at the underemployment rate. There are lots of different measures. So it allows a fair bit of discretion, again, for the RBA to judge where full employment is. The other thing about full employment is it can vary through time. It depends on the structure of the labour market. So it, it varies through time. There's, there's a, again, a lot of discretion left in this agreement between the government and the RBA about what it, what it deems is, is, is full employment. 
Is there anything else new in this statement, given, as you mentioned uh, very early on, that next year the RBA will start implementing some of those recommendations in the RBA review? Well, this is the thing, and there's a lot of change going on in, at the RBA itself. Um, again, n- not so much around the objectives it's got. It's still to get 2 to 3% inflation. It's still to seek to maintain full employment or as close to full employment as it can. But the way it gets there and how those decisions are made, well, there's a lot of change going on. So there's a new board that's going to be formed at the RBA. We don't know what that board looks like yet, but that board will be the Monetary Policy Committee. In terms of processes, the RBA is going through and and going to implement a lot of the things that the review set out in terms of changing the processes, longer board meetings, more briefing with the board, more uh, the, the board gets to vote on monetary policy. So a lot of changes within the RBA in terms of how they come up with the decisions. But in terms of what we will see, well, we will see them still looking to get inflation to 2 to 3%, still looking to maintain full employment, and still using their cash rate setting as their primary tool for making that happen. So a lot of it won't, won't be things that we actually see, but there'll be a lot of processes changes at the RBA itself. Another key area in the statement is that it reiterates the RBA's independence from the government. Does that translate in reality? I think it does. Uh, the RBA is, is definitely independent in terms of its approach uh, and, and, and what it can do. Um, what one thing the, the, the statement does is obviously uh, uh, bolster and, and reassure that, that the RBA is independent, the board can make independent decisions. There is an interesting thing in there, though. It also says that they're to talk through and coordinate and make sure there's proper communication about fiscal and monetary policy. So hopefully uh, the idea is obviously we can have some coordination between the fiscal and the monetary policy settings going on. But the RBA themselves, in terms of the decision they make on the cash rate and their policy tools, that is independent from, from, from the government. Is the government working hand in hand with the RBA? Yesterday, S&P Global said that government spending across all levels, though, may be inflationary. What do you think? Look, I think that there has been a fair bit of coordination. Certainly, if you look back to the earlier budget that we got at a federal level uh, this year, uh, a lot of the upside to revenue was saved. But that's not to say that there can't be more. And I think that's certainly true. There can be more coordination between fiscal and monetary policy. Uh, the more spending there is from the, at the government level, the more likely it is that interest rates aren't going to be able to come down anytime soon. And it's not, of course, just a, state, a federal government story. It's also a state government story. If state governments continue to spend more as well, and, and that's an area where you can see that actually there's been more spending going on, then that, again, also does prop up or support inflation. It means that interest rates might have to be higher for longer. Paul Bloxham there, the Chief Economist at HSBC. Now... Market Day on the SBS On The Money podcast. To the Australian share market, which was weaker for much of the morning, but then recovered to be up 0.3% on the S&P ASX 200, 7,194. The real story of the day, though, was that of a potential merger between Santos and Woodside, valued at around $80 billion, after the two companies confirmed that they were in early talks. For more on that, I spoke with Kyle Rodder from Capital.com. It would be incredibly significant because it marks massive consolidation for the industry over the last few years. I mean, if you look at, um, obviously, the offload of BHP's um, energy assets to Woodside recently, um, and then on top of this, you know, again, as you said, speculation, but uh, the potential for a merger, really effectively an acquisition by um, Woodside of Santos, it would take us to one major uh, gas and energy player 
um, I should say gas and oil player uh, on the Australian market. Now, obviously, there's fairly rational reasons why this is happening, and especially for management at Santos and, and Woodside to an extent too. They have some incredibly valuable assets in the short terms, but one that more than likely will be obsolete uh, in, a, in a generation or two as this sort of transition to greener uh, renewables takes place. So this is a, a fairly, um, uh, well, uh, rational uh, decision or I suppose potentially rational decision from, from both um, companies in terms of trying to find the maximum value out of these assets. Um, if it goes through, though, it'll be, again, very, very interesting because all of a sudden in the space of a few years, we go to from four energy um, players in the local market to just one. And that may raise some questions about, um, well, competition and things of that nature. If it does go ahead, right, and, and we're looking ahead, though, what do you think are the implications for both investors and are there any for consumers? Well, I mean, for investors, it could be reasonably positive because all of a sudden you have one major energy player on the Australian market, but at least in the short term, based on the assumption that you know fossil fuels are still going to be in high demand because of issues around energy security and things of that nature, uh, going forward into the short to medium term, I mean, these com- this entity could effectively print money for shareholders for, for a little while while these assets are still uh, obviously able to, to yield very, very significant earnings. Um, however, there will be sort of some questions raised about obviously competition and what, how that could affect energy markets. I don't think that'll be a major concern ultimately, because if you do look at effectively these companies, they are you know price takers rather than price makers. You know Their profits are very much driven by underlying commodity prices, and that's a, a world uh, dynamic rather than something you know isolated to Australia. Um, but nevertheless, it could be very, very fruitful for investors. There will inevitably be some of those probably political pressures around how this could influence energy markets um, in the short term and how that might flow through to consumers as well. Um, we're talking about oil and gas. That oil price at a six-month low, why? And is there any, I mean, I guess, factor for this potential deal with Woodside and Santos? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it'll have a, a, a big um, uh, influence on this deal it, it itself because what we're really seeing is cyclical influences here. And again, when it comes to the Santos and Woodside uh, situation, really we're talking about two companies who are trying to maximise the value out of their assets for, for shareholders. Um, when it comes to the oil market at the moment, we've seen a really significant drop this week to about five-month lows after basically OPEC failed to uh, intervene with, I guess, enough, enough muscle uh, with, with production cuts uh, to stem what has been a, about a 20 to 25% sell-off in, in oil prices over the last couple of months. And if you do look at certain market indicators, we're heading for a, an oversupply of oil in global markets, mostly driven by a deterioration in the demand outlook. And again, not only uh, the difficulty for OPEC to cut production um, uh, necessary to, to, to address that supply and demand imbalance, but also on top of that as well, um, you know, effectively these concerns um, about uh, global growth going forward. So that's really been what's putting pressure on, on prices recently. Um, and it sort of builds into this, you know, potential recession story that we're getting in global markets too as we look ahead to 2024. Finally, it's been a pretty super start to December. This week, shares are up around 1.5%. Is this the start of the so-called Santa rally? Well, you could argue that we've been a little behind the curve in Australia because, I mean, throughout November uh, in Europe and the United States, we've seen, you know, major indices absolutely surge and we haven't really seen that same strength in our local market. Um, a lot of that is on expectations, rightly or wrongly, for interest rate cuts next year and a peak in the global um, rate hiking cycle, which, again, going into tonight's trade, we've got the non-farm payrolls figures. Um, that will determine whether the Fed indeed can keep policy uh, on hold and maybe, uh, you know, it, at next at um, December meeting, but also might open uh, whether the Fed could open the door to rate cuts 
uh, next year. So uh, the Santa Rally, as it often typically does, really does depend on the outlook for investors going into the new year about monetary policy. If we see softer data, again, the prospect of rate um, cuts being confirmed uh, for some major central banks next year, uh, that could certainly catalyse a global Santa Rally, and, and one would hope maybe Australia can participate that uh, in that just a little bit. Kyle Rodder there from Capital.com. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision. Music